0: How's everybody doing? Good. Good? My wife and I just got back from a marriage conference, and it was absolutely amazing. We celebrate our one-year anniversary tomorrow, which I'm still kind of shocked because uh, I don't know how she put up with me this entire year. Um, (laughs) But uh, one thing that the speaker, his name was Paul David Tripp, he said yesterday, uh, and this kind of ties into the message I'm giving today, he, he was talking about the sovereignty of God in our marriages. He said one of the ways you can know that God is sovereign is he has given people times of waiting. He said waiting is the reminder that you are not king, that God is. And I thought that was brilliant, you know? Because how many times in our life are we waiting and we just feel overwhelmed because we can't actually control everything. We can't control you know, if that uh, company is going to call us back for a job or if the uh, lucky lady is going to say yes to, to the proposal. So, um, But let's open up to Acts 2, 22-41. Follow along with me. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see, or nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, you are awesome, and you are holy, Lord. We thank you for all that you have done in our lives, for saving us from our sins, Lord. We thank you that you are using this church to proclaim the gospel to this city, to our neighborhood, to our friends and family. Lord, we pray for wisdom and knowledge today, that we may grasp uh, what your scriptures teaches, what, how beautiful your character is, Lord, and that we may see that in all life's troubles, you are our God, and you will deliver us, and protect us, and lead us home. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We live in a crazy crazy world. Not a day goes by that we don't hear of natural disasters, war or famine. And the multitude of hardships and evils that even attack us every day. And the question we ask is, where is God in all of this? Where is God when insane dictator in North Korea is about to bring World War III upon us? Where is God when we see a friend Lose a loved one to death or lose a loved one to divorce? Where is God when the government has decided to cut everybody's paycheck by 20%? Or where we can't even get a job? Where is God when we see brothers and sisters and church members slide away from the faith? These are very hard questions And I don't want to come across to you, friends, that this is a, a light subject or that this is easy. Because the subject's not easy. It's very hard on the heart and mind. But know this, that if you dwell and meditate and take rest in what I'm about to say, that if you find your rock and refuge in Christ, if you find Christ to be your all, that even when hardships and evils come, even though it's agonizing and you will struggle, that Christ will bring you through it, not only because he is the sovereign king over all, but because he deeply loves you and has promised that all things will work together for good to those who love God. So like I said, this sermon is about the sovereignty and providence of God, and I want to begin by defining some terms that I'm going to use. so That way we're all on the same page, you know? And I, I, don't, I don't think these terms are hard. I've heard 2 chains use uh, harder words. So I want these uh, you know, I want these to be part of our vocabulary in understanding just how beautiful and magnificent God is. Um, the first one is the sovereignty of God. And what I mean by that is that God is in control of all things. God is in control of everything. Nothing happens outside of his will and rule. God always and without exception has power over all things and he governs all things. We see in the scriptures that God is sovereign over the entire universe. He is sovereign over angels and demons and Satan. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over nations. Sovereign over all human beings, all animals. And he is sovereign over all acts of man. This is a beautiful doctrine to know for the child of God because if God is sovereign over all things, then that means there is nothing that can thwart his plans or hinder him from keeping his promises. This is why we can take delight when we read Romans 8, 31 to 39. If you want to turn there, let me read this for you all. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? That is beautiful. That is beautiful for the child of God. That God is sovereign over all things. And that because he is sovereign, he will bring his children home. There will be nothing that separates his children from the love of Christ. Nothing. Truly amazing. Amazing. Second term I want to explain is the providence of God. And by providence, I mean God's involvement in the world and involvement in our lives. This is the difference between providence and sovereignty. Sovereignty is God's rule over all, God's providence is his involvement in all. The providence of God is God's involvement in bringing all things to their appointed end and for his glorious purpose. And will that and will, and that all is governed by his decision and determination. R.C. Sproul, speaking on the providence of God, says Christianity affirms that the universe is not chaotic. <clears throat> not only was the universe created with a purpose by God, it, was, it is providentially controlled by God as he guides it toward the fulfillment of that purpose. God is in control of every aspect of existence, from the most mundane to the most spectacular He controls kings and nations. He controls the weather. He controls the good in our life, and he controls the bad in our life. God is directing all things toward the fulfillment of his purposes. For the Christian, the providence of God is a great comfort and joy, for he can be assured that all things work together for good to those who love God. I know that it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but I want us to get it in Ingrained in our hearts, ingrained in our minds, how deep and beautiful God's love is for us. That our lives may look chaotic, but God is in control. God will bring you through. So now that we've done this kind of vocabulary foundational work, uh, I want to begin by examining the scriptures and see how God is sovereign and providential in all things. And I believe the best place to go for this, to see truly how sovereign God is, how providential God is, is by looking at the cross. By looking at the cross of Christ in the gospel. And seeing how God is sovereign, even in the death of his son. So let's start, verses 22 to 23. Point number one I want to make is, it was God's plan all along. Let's bring this into context, because we kind of, we're starting halfway kind of through Peter's sermon. The day is Pentecost. Peter and the other apostles have been filled with the Spirit and are now all speaking in different languages and tongues, and uh, everyone's amazed. You know, there's some people who think Peter and the apostles might have had one too many, but what we see is God moving here. His the new covenant redemption. He's bringing about the new covenant, showing that the new people of God is coming from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And he's starting with the most redemptive people, I think, right off the bat, is the apostles of Peter who all fled. And Christ is redeeming them in his mission by making them the first ones to proclaim the gospel. Peter stands up, gives his, this is the first sermon we see in the book of Acts, and it's pretty much a Bible study on how uh, the Old Testament points to Christ, and he uses the Old Testament text to show that the dawn of a new age has come, and that with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a sign that a new covenant has come, a covenant where man has been given a new heart, and that God's law, the Ten Commandments, such as that, has been written on your heart. And that they will truly be sealed and called God's people. And the best surprise is that these people, his people, will know the true intimacy of Christ. This is the difference between the gospel and moralism. Moralism, when people who are not saved by Christ, when they see the Ten Commandments, it's the law. And this law has brought a curse upon us, and there's nothing we can do to really follow it. So we think we can try and get our salvation by following the law, but what God has done is he's implanted a new heart in you, so that way the curse is forever lifted from you, and that now you obey God's commandments out of joy and love and obedience and gratitude. Truly beautiful stuff. Peter then moves on in verse 22-24 to 24 to show that Jesus is the central message of its sermon. With the coming of the Holy Spirit and the inauguration of the new covenant has come by the death and resurrection of Christ. He starts by showing us that all the works and wonders Jesus accomplished in his ministry and life were displays of Jesus' divinity. Every healing, every miracle, every wonder was a sign to the Jews in the world that this was not no ordinary prophet He was not no ordinary teacher. This was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. And that he is the Redeemer that the Jews have all been waiting for. Peter then gives the shocking revelation that the death of the Messiah, the death of Christ, was the plan of God. It was all part of God's plan to crush his Son. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, states, At first sight, it seems unthinkable that a person God had so greatly blessed, this Christ, should later be open to all kinds of abuse and suffer such a death. Because the cross does upset us so, Peter said that Christ suffered nothing by accident or because he lacked the power to rescue himself, but because it was by God's set purpose. Christ's death was ordained by God's eternal counsel, We know that God never does anything for no reason, and from this it follows that there was a good reason for Christ's sufferings. It is God's purpose for us to be subjected to death for our sins and Christ's blood was the price of our death. I think what Calvin is getting at here is that it was God's plan, his purpose that his son be put to the death, be put to death on the cross. Not for no reason but so that his children may have their sin atoned and his glory may be shown. This is what Peter is getting at when he says, when he uses the word foreknowledge. And by foreknowledge, Peter is not simply referring to God's intellect or uh, his omniscience or omnipresence or his knowledge of future events, but to his passionate and intimate love and his affection to save his children. I can't remember if it was Ron Locke or another preacher that came here maybe it was robbed from freedom, and he said that when we say foreknowledge, it would almost be best to say foreloved. God foreloved you by choosing them before the foundation of the world to save them. This is kind of cool. Not just cool, this is beautiful. Um, (laughs) Because what this means for us is that if God is willing to put his very son to death, us. That even when we struggle, when God brings about different evils into our life, different storms, different times of troubles, that is not for no reason. That God is not some mean God who's like, hey, look at my beautiful son right here. I'm going to bring a storm on him because I dislike him, or just because. God's not like that. God has a set purpose and a set plan for everything that happens in life, every storm, every trial, every tribulation, God ha- will use it for those who He loves to show him His love, and that you will be brought through. Verses 24 to 36. let's move on. Point number two I want to make is that it was God's plan. Not only was it God's plan to crush Christ, it was the project of the Trinity to raise Christ. And what we see right here in these next few verses is one of the most amazing things ever. And what I think of is, I think of the scene in the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I'm going to confess that I have not read the second book. So I do not know if this is how it happens in the book or if this is just the movie scene, which is bad. Um, But in the movie, Aslan has been slayed. He is now just laying on the stone tomb and Susan and Lucy are standing there weeping. Weeping weeping because their beloved Aslan has been slayed. And so they start to turn around and go back and walk because they have to go win a fight or win a war. And then a bright light flashes. The tomb's been crushed. Aslan's gone. And they're freaking out like, what's just happened? And then out of nowhere, Aslan comes, renewed, resurrected, resurrected, It's one of the most beautiful scenes. I think I cry every time. If Lily was here, she would tell you that I cry every time because she makes fun of me. (coughs) But this is very much how Jesus uh, is very like, I mean, Aslan was the parallel Jesus. And we see this in the Scriptures. That death could not hold Aslan down. Well, Uh, Death could not hold Jesus down. We don't see Aslan in the scriptures. Death could not hold Jesus down. Death could not contain the author of life. Peter quotes a psalm from David and shows that David wasn't just talking about himself. David was a prophet of God. He knew that Christ would be the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant that God has made with him. So when David quotes this psalm, or when Peter quotes David, he was ultimately pointing to the resurrection of Christ. Peter shows us that this psalm is about Jesus because David died and was buried. And apparently in that day, you could find David's tombstone. You knew where David was buried. But Christ has risen. He was the Holy One that could not be bound, but conquered death. I think what Peter does next is truly astounding. He not only shows us that Christ is the risen king, but truly shows us that the project and plan of redemption for God's people was the project of the triune God. It's not just Jesus who loves you. It is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the Father's plan to crush his son for the sins of his children. It was the son's beautiful life-giving act to die on the cross for our sins. And it is the spirit's pleasure to seal his people and accomplish the work of God in his people's lives. No part of the trinity was against each other. There's some false views out there that said Jesus didn't really want to die. It was kind of like, oh, I don't really want to. You know, it's more of a divine child abuse. That's not true. The Trinity was all part of this plan. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was their pleasure to display their glory and to show love to his children. It was their pleasure to save you. This is the greatest evil. The greatest evil to ever happen was the murder of God. And that's how Peter ends his sermon by capturing his audience with this dagger of a statement that the one they crucified, this Jesus, was God's Messiah, but not only that, that he is Lord and King of the universe. This is crucial. The greatest evil to ever happen, and we're talking about, we're thinking of maybe slavery or the Holocaust, the Inquisitions, the Crusades, but the greatest evil to ever happen was the death of Christ, the most innocent, the innocent one. Verses 37 to 41. Point number three I want to make here is that it was God's plan. Not only was it God's plan to crush Christ, it was the project of the Trinity to raise Christ, but man is responsible for killing Christ. This is such a hard thing to understand. The sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. This is something I think all of us wrestle with. And sometimes we either weigh one too heavy to the other side or the other. You know what I'm saying? But from the scriptures, we could see that there is clear affirmation that God is sovereign over all, yet humans are responsible for their evil deeds. By looking at God's character, we could see that God is good that he's holy, that he's awesome, but that he's not the author of evil. For that is contrary to his character, and it's just downright blasphemy. And even though God ordains evil to pass, man is still not absolved for his responsibilities. So this is crazy, because I think sometimes our finite minds cannot truly understand this how is God, who is sovereign over all and providential over all, who ordains evil to come to pass, how is he not responsible? But when we see his character, we know that he's not responsible for evil because evil cannot come out of God. And then yet, we're still here where man is still responsible for his actions. I can't. It would take so long. I don't even think I could actually... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? What's the word I'm looking for? Describe the tension, you know, between the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. But the scriptures clearly point it out. After hearing this sermon, the listeners are cut to the heart. And I think this is such a clear work of the Holy Spirit. Such a clear work. This is how people are brought to Christ is when they hear the gospel and the spirit cuts them to the heart. And they cry out, what shall we do? Um, but before I tell you what Peter's answer is and what we should do, I think we need to see the problem here. And the problem is, we live in a culture that has been heavily influenced when we th- about the way we think and act. Our culture pounds into our minds that, I mean, this starts early that we are the captain of our own ship, that we decide our destiny. We decide our own fate. So when we hear that God is sovereign, when we hear that he's providential, we kind of push back. We're like, no, 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 no. God, you can't be sovereign. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I decide where I go. You know? And we end up demeaning God's character. We end up not getting a fuller picture of God's character when we do this. And we, we push back because we don't like the implications of this. You know, We don't <laughs> like the implication that God ordains everything to come to pass, even the death of his son, because the reality is we really don't want someone in charge. We want to be our own God. We want to decide how things are and how things go. Last week I preached at uh, Rock Creek Church. And this, we preached on Jonah. Or I preached on Jonah. And uh, that's pretty much the story of Jonah. God's sovereignty is he says, Jonah, I have a mission for you. You're going to go to the Ninevites and you're going to go proclaim my message. And Jonah flees instead. And what we see in Jonah 4 is the reason Jonah fled It's because he wanted to be God. He wanted to carry justice out in his own way. He didn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wanted the Ninevites to be crushed and destroyed. This is what happens, you know? And this is a struggle for the Christians, you know? If God has called us to proclaim the message to our enemies, we want to be our own God and say, no, 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 no. God, I don't think they need your grace. They need your justice. They need to be blown away. But we twist the scriptures to say that no, God is not really in control, that I am the master of my own fate, I am the captain of my soul. But we know this isn't true. We know deep down that this can't be. Because when life happens with death, when death steals our family, when divorce divorce destroys our marriage, and when our sins wreck us, we fall apart at the sight that we really cannot control much. C.S. Lewis said that pain was God's microphone, but I also believe that when life happens and we fall apart, this is God's wake-up call, that you are not God. And that's a good thing. We need this idol destroyed and brought down so we could see just how truly beautiful God is. And here's the thing, we can truly see how beautiful the God of the universe is when we gaze upon the gospel, when we look upon the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ shows us that in God's sovereign and providential plan, God would display his glory and his love for us by ordaining the greatest evil to ever take place, the death of his perfect and righteous son, it was God that ordained that Christ would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. That our sins would be placed upon his bruised and bloodied body. This is what we're going to be talking about on Good Friday and on Easter. I mean, that's what Easter's about. That our sins, God ordained our sins to be placed on Christ so that we do not have to suffer the wrath of God. It was God who chose you to be his child. So that, may you, that, that way you may have forgiveness so you can be adopted as a child of God and be given the most beautiful inheritance ever given, which is being forever in the presence of our king. It was God in the very beginning that got involved in our lives by not only creating us, but walking in the garden with Adam. We see God is a very personal God. He walked in the garden with Adam. He created covenants. Covenants with Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and now his children from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and race. And we see God's involvement, his providential involvement, most beautifully in sending his son to live among his people in a sin corrupted world. I want to say this. If God is not sovereign, if he is not providential, then he is not personal. He is not a personal God. But he is. God is a personal God. He is sovereign. He is providential. And because he is sovereign, God became personal in the most personal way. By actually becoming human, there is a, the message version of the Bible, translates First 1 John 114, and the way he translates, he says, "The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood." <laughs> moved into the neighborhood." God became personal in the most personal way by becoming human and moving into our neighborhood. And then doing the most loving thing that anyone could ever do by taking your place and dying the death that you should have died. So when people ask, and maybe you're asking this yourself right now, is what shall we do? And what we'll see is that the question is, what has Jesus done? And from that, that question, being rooted and grounded in the gospel, Peter then says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, my friends, of your sins. Confess them and be known by the love of Christ. I want to end here with three points of application. We're going to answer three questions What does this mean for my salvation? If God is sovereign and providential, what does it mean for my salvation? What does it mean for how I live my life? And what does this mean on how we deal with evil? First point, what does this mean for my salvation? Christ died so we could be brought home. This is huge. If God is sovereign over all, and he has brought salvation to you and chosen you to be his child, then you can never lose salvation you can never lose salvation. We struggle because there's some false teachings out there that says, yes, you can lose salvation. But no, if God has chosen you to be his child, he's not going to throw you away. He's not going to say, well, this kid's too hard for me. Take him back to the, uh, the boy's home or the girl's home. No, God has brought you into his family and he's going to carry you all the way home. Christ says in John chapter 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again in John ten twenty seven to 29, Christ says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is a comfort. This is a huge comfort. We go through life sometimes when we fall in sin and think, this is it. I'm done through. God's done with me. I broke the last straw. I crossed that line one too many times. But God is sovereign, and he has saved you by sending his son to die for you and by sealing you with the Holy Spirit. And he has sealed you until Christ returns with the new heavens and new earth. This is beautiful, guys. Now, I'm not saying that um, you're absolved from responsibility. This is not to say, well, you know, this is not free reign to just go on and sin. And yes, maybe your sin... Uh, is personal, but ultimately your sin affects everyone, everyone around you. But this is the beauty of Christ. This is the beauty of God, that even though you fall into sin, Christ will bring you out of it. He will bring you home. I want to read Romans eight twenty nine to 39 again. I just think that we need to soak that in. Let me just read this again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. Soak this in. Christ has saved you. Christ, it will bring you home. You will not lose your salvation. You will not be thrown out with the garbage. Christ will bring you home. and knowing this you may rest easy. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Matthew 11:28. He will carry you home no matter what happens. Point number 2, what does this mean for how I live my life? In God's sovereignty, we have responsibilities. And what I mean by this question is this, if God is sovereign and providential, why do we have to do anything? Why should I pray? Why should I evangelize? If God is sovereign and providential, if He's in control of all things, why live? I think the answer lies in Scripture. In Proverbs sixteen nine, if you guys want to turn there, says the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Practically speaking providence does not absolve you of your responsibility to live for God's glory, to pray for God's glory to be displayed, and to evangelize the nations for God's glory. John Calvin, speaking on this very subject, says, this means that we are not at all hindered by God's eternal decrees, either from looking ahead for ourselves or from putting all our affairs in order, but always in submission to his will. The reason is obvious, for he who has set the limits to our life has at the same time entrusted us, entrusted to us its care. He has provided means and helps preserve it. He has also made us able to foresee dangers that they may not overwhelm us unaware. He has offered precautions and remedies. Now it is very clear what our duty is. Thus, if the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. If he offers help, to use them. If he forewarns of dangers, not to plunge headlong. If he makes remedies available, not to, ne- not to neglect them. The Lord has inspired in men the arts of taking counsel and caution by which to comply with his providence and the preservation of life itself. This is amazing. So God is saying, I am sovereign and providential. Or, sorry, what, is, what Calvin is saying is I am sovereign. God is sovereign and providential. Yet, in God's sovereign and providence, He's given you beautiful ways to display His glory. God could easily have chosen angels to proclaim His gospel. But what He has done is He's chosen you, He's chosen to redeem you, and then send you to pray, to evangelize, to live. This is amazing. Because if I was God, I would not send broken people my message. <laughs> I would create robots or, I don't know, some super beings, but I would not send broken sinners to go to pray for my glory to come, to evangelize, or just to live for my glory. But God has chosen us Which makes sense. If God is personal, he would choose man to be personal, too. To live his life in a personal way, by praying for others, by preaching the gospel, by living for God's glory. God in his providence has decided to use us to reach the nations. Not angels, not some special created beings to proclaim the gospel, but sinners saved by grace. God has chosen you to go out into our neighborhood and build relationships in a city that desperately needs Christians who understand how beautiful God is and how awesome his message is. God has decided to give you, you a sinner saved by grace, me the chief sinner saved by grace, the beauty to go to God in prayer and to be able to sit in his throne room This is beautiful. God has given us, through Christ, the ability to go to him in prayer on behalf of friends and brothers and sisters and then be able to see his wonders and his awesome work. Point number three, the cross is the answer to the problem of evil. I want to be as gracious as I can when I talk about this subject. I took a philosophy class in college, and it was amazing when we came upon the problem of evil that it was so easy to, what's the word? Philosophize? Philosophize? Blah, blah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Something like that, yeah. So easy to take that topic and almost become numb to it, but the reality is everyone in that class had been affected by evil, and I want to Be cautious when I speak here because we have all been affected by evil. We've all lost people. We've lost friends and family. We've had broken relationships. When evil strikes and we fall to our knees and look up and ask, where is God? Why did you let this evil take place? Why are you not answering my prayers? Why are you letting this happen to me, my friends, and my family? Why are you not reaching people? Where are you, God, when it hurts? Why does the sovereign and providential God allow evil? Here's the answer. Are you guys ready? I don't know. I don't know. God is greater and higher than me and his reasons are greater and higher and nobler than mine. But I do know this, that God took on flesh, moved into the neighborhood, and got involved in the most personal and vulnerable way by becoming like us in dealing with problems, hardships, and evils. God became so vulnerable for us to show us that he does not take evil lightly, but that he would take on evil itself. This is the wonder of the cross, that Christ would suffer the most terrible evil in the world and pay the penalty. He would take on death. On the cross, Christ not only suffers evil like the rest of us, but he deals with it. And not that evil that just happens to us, but the evil that is in our heart. God so loved us that he took our evil so we may be fully known by him. We may be washed by his blood and forgiven of our sins. He took on evil by dying on the cross. And this is that hope. This is the hope that the first time Christ came, he took on evil by dying. And this is how we see the problem of evil solved. He conquered death on the cross, but the second time, when the king returns, he will wipe away all tears, He will destroy all evil and he will bring about a new kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth where evil will never touch us and where we will finally be able to be in the arms of the sovereign and providential king who saved us let's pray father God I thank you for all you have done in our lives Lord for saving us for redeeming us Lord, evil is heart-wrenching, and we don't know what to do sometimes when our prayers aren't answered or when evil strikes us, but Lord, please embed it in our hearts that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you will bring us home to your kingdom, Lord. Let this truth be soaked in our hearts. We love you. We praise you. Amen.